You have uh, there in your uh, packet the Old Testament and New Testament reading as well as uh, the sermon text. And you'll see the Old Testament reading is from Exodus chapter 21, verses 1 through 11. Before we read, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this day that you have made. And God, I do thank you for the opportunity that we have to gather together to worship you. And I thank you for your word that you have given to us. I pray you would help us to receive your word as a gift uh, for our good. God, we pray that you would help us, uh, as we hear your word read and proclaimed today, to be changed uh, more and more by your word and by your spirit into the people that you have made us to be in relationship with you through Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Exodus chapter 21, verses 1 through 11. Here we go. These are the laws you are to set before them. If you, oh, I forgot, I was supposed to give you some context for this. So the context for where we are in Exodus is the people of, uh, the Hebrew people who've been um, in Egypt for like 400 years as slaves of the Egyptians, and God has brought them out of slavery, and raised up Moses, brought them out of slavery uh, in Egypt, and they are not yet to the land that God had promised Abraham all those years before, and instead, at this point, they have uh, gotten out of uh, Egypt, but they have not gotten into the promised land. They're in that in-between time, uh, much like we all are as Christians who <laughs> have uh, come out of the old way of life, and yet we are not yet into um, the uh, the life that is to come. And so we are still kind of in that in-between time. Now, with that said, they have actually come to Mount Sinai, and at Mount Sinai we have seen the Ten Commandments there that God has given Moses. Now there's a lot more stuff that he's going to continue to say to the people. This is how you are to live as my people. I'm going to be your God. You are going to be my people. Here's how you're going to live. And so um, that's where we get where we are today. So it says, these are the laws you are to set before them. If you buy a Hebrew servant, he is to serve you for six years. But in the seventh year, he shall go free without paying anything. If he comes alone, he is to go free alone. But if he has a wife when he comes, she is to go with him. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the woman and her children shall belong to her master and only the man shall go free. But if the servant declares, I love my master and my wife and children and do not want to go free, then his master must take him before the judges. He shall take him to the door or the doorpost and pierce his ear with an awl. Then he will be his servant for life. If a man sells his daughter as a servant, she is not to go free as male servants do. If she does not please the master who has selected her for himself, he must let her be redeemed. He has no right to sell her to foreigners because he has broken faith with her. If he selects her for his son, he must grant her the rights of a daughter. If he marries another woman, he must not de- deprive the first one of her food, clothing, and marital rights. If he does not provide her with these three things, she is to go free without any payment of money. Turning then to our New Testament reading. This is Luke chapter 4, verses 4 through 30. Nope, 14 through 30. This is after Jesus has been baptized and then uh, has gone into the wilderness where he was tempted for 40 days. And it says, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news spread about, news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. 
He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son? they asked. Jesus said to them, Surely you will quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself, and you will tell me, do here in your hometown what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. Truly I tell you, he continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time, when the sky was shut for three and a half years, and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath, in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of the town, and took him to the brow of the hill on which the, til- on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Okay. Before we get into our scripture text, uh, our sermon text for this morning, I need to issue a bit of a content warning. Uh, this is going to deal with uh, things that uh, are occur between a husband and wife in the bedroom, that kind of activity. So if there are uh, young ones that you think maybe this is not uh, appropriate, maybe may take them uh, a little further away from the speaker for a bit. Uh, otherwise, I'm going to, we'll still try to handle this at more of a PG level, uh, but uh, the word S-E-X is going to come up a bit. Anyway, just fair warning. There you go. Now, having said that, here's the other, <laughs> the other bit of all this. Um, as a pastor, I, like, my role is not that of, like, a, a political pundit or, where, or a uh, sports commentator where you see what's going on and then you just tell everybody what you think about it. That's not my job. <laughs> my job is not to tell you what I think about stuff. Um, I would love to tell you what I think about stuff. That's not my job. <laughs> but instead, uh, it is actually to continually uh, to look to what God has said and help us understand what God has said. And, um, and actually, in that regard, when I first came to this church uh, in, at the end of 2007, uh, it's been a while ago now, uh, I was 30 years old, and I remember going to Sunday school class the first uh, Sunday that I was here, and, um, sex, anyway, doesn't matter. Anyway, first time I went to Sunday school class, I'm sitting there going, I'm 30. There are people in this class that are 90. What do I have to say to them? Nothing. <laughs> they have three times the life experience that I have. I don't have anything to offer. But then kind of the answer that I got in prayer about this is uh, kind of the same thing as what we have from uh, in 2 Corinthians where Paul had prayed for the thorn in his flesh to be taken away. And the response he gets is, but my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And he says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. 
In other words, uh, Paul was dealing with a weakness, and yet he found out that God gave him what he needed, though, anyway. So it didn't take away the weakness. You still have the weakness. And so I was still going to be 30 years old. I was still going to only have 30 uh, years of life experience. But what had he given me? He'd give me what I needed, right? Because I was thinking of it from the perspective of I, uh, what I have to offer is the experience I have over my 30 years. And these people who are so much older than me have so much more experience. And I was comparing the 30 to the 90. Change of perspective. How much older uh, than 90 is God? Uh, a bit, right? A bit. Not even close. 30 is way closer than 90 <laughs> than 90 is to the age of God. And so it seems then, okay, well then God may have something to say even to 90-year-olds. And so then the closer we stick to this, <laughs> the more it doesn't matter what our age is, we do have something to say, right? This is why you see in First uh, Timothy where Paul says, don't let anyone look down on you because you're young, right? It's not about your age. <laughs> it's about who God is and how we can point people to him. Okay, I say all that because then, so what do we do? If we were to stick close to the word, and it's not just me giving my ideas, it's sticking close to the word, and so every Sunday, what we're doing is going to the Bible and saying, what is the next passage? What does it say? What does that mean then for us? And I try to explain this from time to time so you understand why we're doing what we're doing. But I also mention it today because otherwise you'd be like, why in the world would he pick a passage like that for a Sunday like this? Because I, I didn't pick it. <laughs> we are going through the, uh, the letter of 1 Corinthians, and this is the one for today. Now that said, that's a great passage. Um, but if you can tell that I'm stalling, you're right. It's not going to be a fun one to talk about. <laughs> this is 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 1 through 16. You do have that uh, there in front of you. I just, I'll let you know though, often what we do is we kind of go through sort of verse by verse and really unpack as much as we can in the time we have. Um, yeah, today, not quite so much. Um, but take more of a big picture view of this. Uh, if you want to get into more of the <laughs> verse by verse stuff, talk to me later. Okay, here we go. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Paul says, now for the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. Do not deprive each other except perhaps by mutual consent and for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come, then come together again, so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say this as a concession, not as a command. I wish that all of you were as I am. But each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. Now, to the unmarried and the widows, I say, it is good for them to stay unmarried as I do. But if they cannot control themselves, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. To the married, I give this command, not I, but the Lord. A wife must not separate from her husband. But if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And a husband must not divorce his wife. 
To the rest, I say this, I, not the Lord. If any brother has a wife who is not a believer and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbeliever leaves, let it be so. The brother or the sister is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. How do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? There you go. Right? All right. Well, it <laughs> in Ephesians chapter 6, uh, Paul also, is, when he's concluding the section on the armor of God that we're to put on, he also says, And pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. And then he says, Pray also for me, that whenever I speak, words may be given me, so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly, as I should. Please pray for me this morning. <laughs> this is, uh, yeah, it's, it's a dicey passage. And it deals with a lot of... Uh, a lot of issues that would be really easy to take the wrong way. It'd be really easy to read this and to see in it some sort of uh, new legalism. And, okay, this is what Paul says. So he said, you need to do this. So you need to do this, right? Anybody hear that in there anywhere? Or at least the possibility for it? There is that possibility for it. And for a lot of us, uh, maybe you have... Uh, experienced a certain level of abuse in the home one way or another and often there is a type of abuse that even occurs that is not just physical but even spiritual where people are taking verses like these to use them to justify the abuse that they are uh, inflicting on others right that makes this particularly dicey because we bring to a passage like this the baggage that we have from earlier in our lives and so we don't come here as just, you know, blank slate, now we read it, and oh, that's what it means, there we go. But instead, we kind of got to deal with some of the, ugh, is that saying what I think it's saying? That sounds terrible. And I'll tell you this, if you think it sounds terrible, probably misunderstanding it. Because <laughs> what's going on here is actually a really beautiful thing, and it's actually within the context of what's going on in the culture of Corinth at the time, and the way in which uh, a life lived in, uh, in Jesus changes everything for the good. And here's what I mean by this. In Corinth, this is a, uh, a town that is built on this narrow little strip of land. And uh, there's water on both sides. And you've got to kind of sail way far around if you're going to get to the other side. And so... What, Ships would often do, they'd come and they'd get to one side, and then they'd pull the boats up onto the land, roll them across on logs, put them back in the water, and then go from there, because that was actually uh, easier, save time, than sailing all the way around. What that meant, though, is there were crews of people who would do the rolling of the ships, while everybody else is just in town, enjoying what the town has to offer. And what the town had to offer was a lot of what happens in Corinth stays in Corinth. That's what the town had to offer. And so you have a lot of uh, 
the culture of wild living. And so you have this church that has been started in Corinth, and you have people who are now trying to follow Jesus and who are trying to follow Jesus together and have their lives actually changed by Jesus, which means they're not going to live like the rest of the culture anymore, are they? No. And yet, there is still this this cultural baggage. There's the way that they've been brought up. There's the pressures from everybody around them who's doing things differently. So what do you do? <laughs> and so there's been kind of this back and forth between the ways that the uh, the church is trying to follow Jesus and yet is being influenced by the culture and then the things that Paul is saying, speaking into the life of this church and saying, no, 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 stop following the culture. Follow Jesus. His way is different. And that's what we get here. And what we get here is actually multiple examples of how that works, even in the closest of relationships, that being marriage. And so, uh, the the way that this interaction has been going is he's actually quoting some of the things that uh, the church in Corinth has been saying, or some of the sayings that were around at the time. And uh, we looked at some of those last week, uh, where it says, like, I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. And um, and we looked at how they looked at the body and the spirit as, ah, the, you know, it's the spiritual stuff that's important, right? And if it's the spiritual stuff that's important, that means the body doesn't matter. And so whatever you do with your body doesn't matter. And so we can live just like the rest of Corinth with our bodies as long as, you know, spiritually we're still devoted to God. And Paul says, no! <laughs> No, you cannot. Our bodies do matter. What we do with our bodies does matter. If bodies didn't matter, Jesus wouldn't have been born in the flesh. But he was. And he lived. And he died. And he was raised again in the flesh. Because our flesh matters too. And so what we do with our bodies does matter. And so then you take the other side of this. And you have people saying, okay. Well, if what we do with our bodies. If that really matters. And if... uh, you know, we see so much uh, sexual corruption around us, then I, I got it. Nobody should have any sex at all. That solves the problem. We're brilliant. And Paul says, no, <laughs> that's not it either. And uh, and it's making the same kind of mistake that we see all over the place. Uh, there's, um, I don't know if you've noticed this, if you watch any shows or movies that uh, are made from uh, not a Christian perspective, but from any other perspective. Shame on you. How dare you? Anyway, <laughs> I'm just kidding. But if you watch these shows, you watch these movies, the way that they handle sex is just blows my mind. Because on the one hand, in the same episode of the same show or within the same movie, you will have the perspective that, hey, sex is no big deal. Everybody can you know, sleep with whoever, and it's just our bodies. It doesn't matter, and it's you know, whatever. Anything goes. All is fine. Anybody who has an issue with it, that's just weird. And in the same episode, you'll have something happen where somebody will sleep with somebody. It's like, this is the end of everything. It ruins the whole world because now these two people have slept together and now it's all like it's the biggest thing ever. It's like, how is it no big deal at all and the biggest thing ever? I don't know. Because I'll tell you this, for Christians, it is not no big deal. But it's also not the biggest thing ever. Right? And so... Sex is a gift of God that is to be used uh, properly and within the proper sphere. There's a um, good illustration uh, that I did not come up with this one. I've heard this. Uh, I'm sure you have as well. Is fire good or bad? 
Ah. <laughs> yeah, if you've recently been burned, you may be thinking it's bad. And nobody should have fire. Just put the end of all that. On the other hand, you know that no, that's not true. The fire is good in its proper place. And so and there's a big difference between having a fire in the fireplace, in uh, your living room, on a cold winter's night. Lovely. Big difference between that and a fire in your living room floor <laughs> that is now threatening to burn your house down. Big difference. Um, when I was... Maybe I shouldn't... Uh, I think we'll be fine. When I was younger, I made bad decisions. Don't do this. Um, there was a time where I got my... Uh, I thought fire was not only good, I thought it was super cool, right? And so I got my sister's uh, aerosol hairspray and lighter, made my own little at-home flamethrower. Don't worry, my mom was gone. Um, but she came home to see me uh, <laughs> flamethrowing the bushes in the front of our house. I thought... This is awesome. <laughs> she had a different perspective. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, I was immediately grounded. This was, uh, yeah, I was, <laughs> didn't realize what kind of danger I was actually playing with there. And I think the same kind of thing is true when we look at sex. As there is a danger there, often we don't even realize the danger that we're playing with there. And with that, uh, in mind, this is where I think the people in Corinth, who, from right impulse then, goes, okay, if it's that dangerous, we must stay away entirely. And again, this sounds familiar. If you remember the uh, early chapters in Genesis, where you got Adam and Eve in uh, the garden, and uh, God says, you are not to eat from the fruit of that tree, right? And this, then the serpent shows up and says, does God really say you can't eat from the fruit of that tree? You remember what uh, the woman says? He says, yeah, yeah, we can't eat from it. In fact, he said you can't even touch it. No, he didn't. Why would you say you couldn't, that he said you couldn't touch it? Well, obviously, if you don't touch it, you're not going to be able to eat from it. So, haha, <laughs> solve the problem. It's actually created a different problem. And we do this all the time. And we got to remember, the idea is to stay on the path, right? And what tends to happen is we do this overcorrection thing that I talked about last week, where, uh, you realize you're getting off one side, and so then you swerve too far the other direction, and that gets you in trouble too. And so often what we'll do is it's like we're on a mountain road, and you got the mountain on this side with all the rocks and everything, and then you got the cliff and the drop-off over here. And we either go, oh no, we'll stay so clear of the rocks, we'll drive off the cliff. That'll fix it. That doesn't fix anything. I didn't hit the rocks. Great. Anyway, or we do the other where it's like, oh, we're gonna got to avoid the cliff, and so we just slam our car into the rocks. And like, well, at least we didn't go over the cliff. Well, great. But either way, we've caused a problem. And the idea is not to go off one side or the other, but to stay on the path. And so with this, what Paul is uh, pointing us to, with all these different examples that he gives, is, I'll, I hope you notice through there, uh, like, who gets to say in a marriage uh, how things are going to be? Is it the husband or is it the wife? Who gets to say how things are going to be? Go ahead and read through that again. I'll wait. I will accept two answers. Neither or both. 
Because that's what's actually going on here, isn't it? What he's depicting here is not something that should be used for abuse. That's actually way out of line. What he's actually saying here is that when making decisions on how we relate to each other, you have to remember that the two in marriage, the two become one flesh. In other words, what either person decides to do with their body affects the other person. It just does. And so when you're making a decision, it has to include what is going to be good for the other person. Listen to this. I read the part from chapter 6 where he's quoting and says, I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. We have a culture today, much like the Corinthian culture, where too many people are mastered by, enslaved by sex. Paul says that is not how it ought to be. You move on, though, into uh, chapter 10, and he quotes it again. I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but not everything is constructive. And he says, no one should seek their own good but the good of others. This is the principle at work in chapter 7. As it relates to sex, whose good should be considered? Oh, let me tell you about my needs. No. (laughs) Consider the other person. That's how you make the decision. And who should be considering the other person? Both. (laughs) Husband and wife should be considering the other person. That this is a mutual submission. This is in uh, for the good of the other. And you're like, well, where is Paul getting this? Right? How come uh, he's got this, oh, you should be uh, <laughs> seeking the good of the other person. Aren't we supposed to put ourselves first? No. This is all about how do we live as Christians, Right? How is it that we uh, follow Jesus? Well, what did Jesus do? See, if you go to Philippians chapter 2, Paul says again uh, to the church in Philippi, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Do you hear this? Basically, if Jesus puts himself first, we all have no hope. But he doesn't. He puts our needs ahead of his own. And then, not only does he go to the cross for us, but then he says, take up your cross and follow me. It's a whole new way of life, and it affects every area of our lives. It affects all of our relationships. And of course, then, that means it's going to affect the marriage relationship, the closest of all our human relationships. And so, um, and that means that it affects uh, sex, it affects uh, marriage and divorce, and 
And as Paul goes through this, don't, please don't hear it as a new uh, legalism where you go to this verse and say, well, it says this, and so that means you need to do that. No. The whole idea, and read through it again and again, the whole idea is this idea of mutual submission. This idea of, I'm going to seek your good. The whole reason he's talking about in the second part of this, of <clears throat> like if, if you're married to somebody who's not a believer, and this is not, by the way, advice to, hey, go marry an unbeliever, and then maybe you can save them that way. No, bad advice. Don't do that. Instead, it's if, if you're both unbelievers, and you get married, and then you become a believer. What does that mean? You're not supposed to be unequally yoked. So does that mean now you have to leave your spouse? And Paul says, no, you don't. In fact, you, you shouldn't. You should stay married to them as long as they'll have you. And who knows? <laughs> maybe then they will come to faith through you. On the other hand, maybe they won't. Maybe they'll say, I can't be married to somebody like this, and they leave. And what do you do? You make them stay? No. And so there's a practical element of this where Paul is always saying, as you're making your decisions in your relationships, make sure you are looking at the good of the other person. That is the key. Why is that the key? Because that's what Jesus does for us. That's why it's the key. And so if we ever forget and we're like, well, wait, what's the rule again? The rule is go back to Jesus. (laughs) That's the rule. Jesus actually himself said, do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Which means, we look at Jesus, that's how we live, right? As his people, as those who are following him. This is what the whole letter to uh, the church in Corinth is about. That's what the whole the Bible is actually about. And this is why uh, Jesus is actually able to say uh, to his disciples, and he was asked, you know, what's the greatest commandment? You remember what he said? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, right? The night before he goes to the cross, over and over again, he has the same thing that he's saying to the disciples. Love one another. Love each other. Love one another. Over and over and over again. And in fact, he puts it like this. He says, this is my command. Love each other as I have loved you. Do you hear that? It's not love each other in a way that seems right in your own eyes. Love each other in the way that your culture defines love. No. He says, love each other as I have loved you. Well, what does that mean? It means we go back and we look at Jesus constantly. That is the rule. We go back to Jesus again and again and again. And we seek to take up our cross, deny ourselves, take up our cross daily, and follow him in everything. In the name of the Father, the Son, Holy Spirit. Amen.